Hey, well, good morning, everybody. It's a tough time of year. There's uh, Christmas is over, New Year's is over. Uh, there's no football to speak of today, really. I mean, if you count the Pro Bowl, maybe, but that's not going to be any real football. Um, it's a tough time of year for me. And the credit card bills from Christmas start rolling in, right? It's that time of year. And I'm, I'm disappointed today, I have to admit. I'm disappointed because as I was doing research for the message today, we're in part two of My Money, My Life, uh, that I found that I missed out on one of the hottest gift crazes of 2011. You know, I saw this article online about one of the most popular gifts that parents were getting for their adult children for Christmas. And it wasn't clothes, it wasn't electronics, or even gift cards. Uh, did you see this? Do you know what this is? Uh, I found this article online in a, in a journal called The Fiscal Times. The Fiscal Times, and it says, the headline is, Why Parents Are Paying Off Their Kids' Debts. Now, the article reads in part, this year, a lot of parents are giving their children the, the gift of debt repayment. After watching their children struggle in these hard economic times, parents are skipping the gift cards and books and opting instead to pay off their children's mortgages, credit card debts, or student loans. A May 2011 survey by the National Endowment for Financial Education found that nearly 60% of parents are providing financial support to their adult children who are no longer in school. Now, that, that surprises me, and I know some of you have adult children who are no longer in school, so you go, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, nearly half said that they are doing so because they are, quote, legitimately concerned with their children's financial well-being. Now, this article goes on to tell the story of a woman who decided to give her son an early Christmas present and pay his mortgage for a year. But she didn't want to just give him the money because she didn't trust what he might do with it. So she set up an account where she would automatically deposit $2,500 a month into this account, and his mortgage would be drawn from it for the next year. Now, it's not, all, not at all unusual, you probably think, for a parent to help a struggling child who's just out of school who maybe hasn't found a job yet. But this woman is 80 years old, okay? And so we're not talking about a 22-year-old son who just hasn't found his way yet. This, this guy's probably in his 50s or 60s. And so it's not enough that as adults we're going back to live with our parents after school, but many of us are actually find ourselves in a position where we have to get help dealing with our debt from our parents. In fact, the article quotes one tax attorney who recently had a client pay off her, her recently had a client pay off her son's entire $480,000 mortgage. And I can sense the tension in the room right now. Because about half of you are thinking, that's ridiculous. What have we come to as a society that we can't even pay our own debts? And the other half are saying, man, I wish my mom had done that for me for Christmas. That would have been a lot better than that sweater she got me. You know, I don't have to tell you that our country's been in a financial crisis, that, that our world is in a financial crisis. I don't have to tell you that. You turn on the news and you hear a story about Greece defaulting on their debt or Portugal, or some other European country that you've never been to, that you've never seen, that somehow, in some way, is going to affect your financial life, maybe for, for months and years to come. Or maybe you heard a story about the debt ceiling and a new campaign to raise that again, and you think, didn't we just go through this a couple months ago? Yeah, we did. And some of us have a tendency to look at these things and to blame our leaders. And Well, it's Congress's fault, or it's the President's fault. It's because of the World Bank or, or the Euro or the Federal Reserve or some other big faceless member of our military financial complex. You know, but the one place we seldom look for blame is in the mirror. And while you may think that there are too many hands grabbing for too little money on the world political stage, I mean, that may be true, 
But I suggest that a good part, at least some, of the debt problem uh, that we have in our nation, in our world, is really just a reflection of how a lot of us manage our financial lives. You know, there, there, there's the idea for some of us of controlling our money just seems overwhelming. It's impossible. You know, there's just too much debt. There are too many bills. There's too little income. There's just no way to control it. And the sad truth is that most of us have never been taught how to manage our money. I mean, very few of you, very few of us, I would imagine, ever took a class in school about how to balance your checkbook or why to avoid debt or how to invest for the future. Or uh, wouldn't it be nice if someone would just teach us this? I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was just a book that you could find that could teach you how to have financial security? Well, I've got good news for you today. There is a book. Take a look. I, I know, I know. I know, it, it's, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's funny that we think we need a book to tell us that we shouldn't buy things we don't have money for, but the truth is, that's how most of us end up in the financial circumstances we end up in. That's how most of us get into debt. Now, I think it's important this morning to acknowledge that, that there are some people that fall into debt. And by that, I mean that there are some people who are going along and it's a quick descent into debt. You know, an emergency comes up. Uh, some medical bills happen. There's the accident. Uh, there's not enough money to deal with it. And boom, we're in debt. But for most of us, this is how, it, that's not how it happens. Most of us don't fall into debt as much as we wander into debt. Uh, we, we just accumulate debt just by playing the game of life. You know, we graduate from high school and, and, and we want to go to college. We need some help. So we take out a student loan or two. Uh, or we start our life and we need a new car. And so uh, rather than buying one we can afford, we just decide to go out and buy or lease a new one because we don't want to have to pay, with the, pay for the repair bills when they come along. So we do what all our friends did. Now, then we put a few things on the credit card. Maybe it's the wedding or the honeymoon or the furniture or a suit for that new job interview. And eventually you get a house, and that means more payments. And your new neighbors have nicer cars than you have and better furniture. And if you're not careful, you reach a place where you're no longer playing the game of life. Now it's playing you. you know, now you're not controlling your money, but it's controlling you. And I've got to tell you, if you've ever taken a cash advance from one credit card to make the payment on another, then money is probably controlling your life. If you don't have a savings or a retirement account to speak of, then money is probably controlling your life. If you don't remember saving up to buy something, where would one get this saved money anyway? Then money's probably controlling your life. And if missing one paycheck would cause you to seriously consider declaring bankruptcy, then money's probably controlling your life. You know, you're, you're going through the motions, and, and you may even look normal on the outside, but in the inside, the worry is consuming you. It's what you think about all day long. It's what you stress out about. It's the reason you won't answer the telephone. You know, if you're in that situation, then money is probably consuming your life. You, you know, the, the mountain of debt just seems too big to climb. And if you're a proud person, let's face it, if you're a guy, you probably won't talk to anyone about this. You know, there's a good chance you'll just work extra hours. You'll take on extra jobs. You squeeze wherever you can. And if you're not careful, you drive yourself to where, as one author says, you're no longer making a living, you're making a dime. You know, we're in this series we're calling My Money, My Life, and, and we're taking three weeks to talk about a biblical perspective on money. You know, so, so why is talking about money important here? Why talk about this in the church? Well, there's two reasons, I think, and the first is this. As, as Paul mentioned last week, uh, it, it's pretty clear. Uh, Jesus was clear. Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, money competes with God for a place in our heart. You know, God knew that money would be his chief competitor. And even if you don't love money, but if your money is controlling your life, it's still competing with God for a place in your heart. Your relationship with God is screwed up because of your relationship with money. You know, some of us want to give more. We want to be more generous. We want to make a difference, but we can't because our money is controlling us. The second reason for us to talk about this here is this. Everything you own is God's. Everything you own is God's. Paul talked about that last week. Uh, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That means in order for your relationship with God to be right, you have to believe that everything you own is really God's. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, we talked about the importance of giving. You know, when we give, we honor God in our finances. We are, are directing our hearts. We're getting started in the right direction. You know, it doesn't mean we've arrived, but that we're on our way, on our way. Uh, giving is a way of starting in that direction. And if you missed it, I highly recommend you go listen to Paul's message uh, last week on our website. But Paul issued a challenge to the church. He challenged all of us from wherever we are to begin tithing in 2012, if you're not already, uh, starting in 2012. That is, to give a tenth of your income to the church. And he talked about the fact that you can't really give the tithe. You know, the tithe already belongs to God. It's not ours to give. Uh, It already belongs to the Lord. Scripture is very clear about that. A tenth or a tithe of what we make belongs to God. And not just any tenth, but the first tenth. But really, everything we have belongs to God. You know, He is the owner, and you are the caretaker. You get to manage the money God's entrusted you with for your life, and then just like a Monopoly game, in the end, it all goes back in the box. You know, for what you have, God has entrusted you to manage. God has hired you to take care of that amount of money, that amount of possessions, that amount of income for your life. So take a look at your situation now. Take a look at how you're doing with your money. Let me ask you a question. If you were God, would you hire you? You know, Jesus tells this story about what the kingdom of God will be like in Matthew 25. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Matthew 25, uh, starting in verse 14, he says this. Again, it, and when he says it, he means the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, another two talents, and another one talent. Now remember, a talent is a large sum of money, thousands of dollars worth of money. And so this man entrusts his three servants with this money. The man, um, let's see, Sorry, the man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of more things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered your seed. 
So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. It's a hard story to read. But see that in there, there's this expectation from God that we will do a good job of managing what he's entrusted us with. You know, there's this idea also inherent in this story that God says, if you do a good job managing what you have, you will get more. And if you don't, then what you have will be taken from you. And I'm not promising that God, if you manage God's money well, that he's going to make it rain Benjamins on your head, okay? But I do think we see this over and over again in real life. I mean, we've all heard stories about athletes or entertainers who have millions and millions of dollars thrown at them, and they burn through it as quickly as it comes. You know, one, one broken bone, uh, one box office flop, and the money stops running, and everything they have is gone. Managed poorly, money runs away. Money is just like you. It's attracted to people who will care for it. At the same time, we've probably all heard stories like that of Gro- Grace Groner. Uh, This is from The Telegraph. Grace Groner lived in a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, By the time she was 12, both of her parents had died. And she and her twin sister were raised by friends of their parents who paid for them to attend Lake Forest College, a little community college there in Lake Forest, Illinois. Groner graduated in 1931 and worked for 43 years as a secretary for Abbott Laboratories. One job her entire life. She was was best known by her neighbors uh, for buying clothes from rummage sales and walking instead of buying a car. She lived in the same house her entire life. But when she died, she left her alma mater $7 million. You know, nobody ever knew that she had this kind of money as she she shopped at rummage sales. Uh, But uh, a few years ago, she had given a gift of $180,000 to the college, and people thought, well, where did that come from? Well, at the end of her life, she was able to leave $7 million to her college, even though she never made a huge income. Now... I don't know about you, but when my life's over, I don't want God to call me wicked or lazy. I'd much rather him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So what do we do? Where do we turn for help? Well, we joked a minute ago and saw a video about a book that could help you manage your financial life well. Uh, In reality, there really is a book that will help you manage your financial life well. And I know since you're here at church, you know I'm going to say that it's the Bible, but it's not just the Bible. Uh, There's a book, a specific book in the Bible that has lots of great wisdom about money, and it's the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is a great book uh, because, one, it's easy to read, but, two, it has lots of good advice for this life. You know, even now in the year 2012, you can read the book of Proverbs, and you can find practical advice you can implement in your life to make it better today. Now, Proverbs was written by Solomon, who is the son of King David. And the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And that's a good, that's important, because if you're going to take advice from somebody, you want to take advice from a wise man, not from a foolish man, right? Uh, you know, and, but the other thing is that the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wealthiest man who ever lived. And in fact, a lot of biblical scholars estimate that Solomon's wealth was worth nine figures or over $100 million, and that was 3,000 years ago. So if I were to try to adjust that for inflation... I'm not sure I can count that high, you know, but, but listen, if you're going to take money advice from somebody, take money advice from someone who has money. 
not from your broke relative that just has way too loud an opinion, okay? Take money advice from someone who's been there and who has money and knows what they're doing. And so I just want to acknowledge today that there are some people here that I know really want to give, but you don't know how. You know, you look at your money and see that it's a mess. Uh, You need a plan. And so along comes the book of Proverbs, and I think even if your financial life isn't a mess, I think you can still benefit from this wisdom. And no matter how well you think you're doing, I think there's some areas that we can all tighten up on. So so here they are. And number one, and these are in your notes if you want to follow along. Number one is this. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Proverbs 14, 24 says this. The wealth of the wise is their crown, but the folly of fools yields folly. Think about that. The folly of a fool yields folly. A, A mentor of mine used to say it this way. If you keep doing what you've been doing, you'll keep getting what you've been getting. You know, if your goal is to get out of debt, step one seems so obvious. Step one is to stop going into debt. You know, stop spending. Don't buy stuff you can't afford. But if you carry your credit cards everywhere, it will never happen. You know, I love this this proverb, not from the Bible, but from the Dakota Indians that says this. If you find out you're riding a dead horse, the next logical step is to dismount. And I think some of us realize that in our financial lives, we're riding a dead horse, but we haven't had the sense to get off yet. You know, so here's a thought. Keep your car this time until it's paid off. Cut up your credit cards. Don't have the guts to cut them off. You know, you're afraid you might need them for an emergency. Try this. Freeze them. Put them in a block of ice. Put them in a Tupperware container. Fill it with water. Put it in the freezer and freeze it. When you decide you want some frozen assets, that's what they call that in the financial world. Uh, When you put that in the freezer, you put that in the freezer. When you get it out, if you decide you want to buy something, it's going to take two or three days for that ice to melt off of there. And by then, you'll know if that's an emergency or not. By the way, if you try to microwave them, you'll melt your credit card. So don't try that. <laughs> Married couples, you want to stop the bleeding? Hear this. Financial counselors and marriage counselors will tell you the most successful marriages don't have my money and your money. They have our money. You know, when you got married, you became one flesh. You know, the Bible tells us that in God's eyes, you are one physical person. So doesn't it make sense to be one financial person? You know, think about it. If you're married, there are no your money problems and my money problems. There are only our money problems. You know, they're ours. And guys, hear me on this. Even if your wife earns less than you do, even if she earns zero, what she does allows you to do what you do. In, in my house, I don't earn money. We earn money. You know, separate accounts mean three things in a marriage. One, they mean less communication about money. The couples from separate checking accounts are less likely to be on the same page about money than those with joint accounts. Number two is this. Separate accounts are an indicator that you might not be on the same page in other parts of your marriage. You know, they're a symptom. They're not a solution. And number three is this. Separate accounts enable the hiding of purchases and dishonesty in finances. You know, it makes it much harder to stop the bleeding if you don't know what your spouse is spending. Now, on the other hand, if you're not married, don't combine accounts with anyone. You know, should, should you talk about money? Absolutely. If you're thinking about getting married, if you're, you're in a relationship, as soon as you're comfortable, talk about your dreams, talk about your ideas, uh, your philosophy on debt, your comfort levels, and whatever you want to talk about, but don't pay anyone else's debts. The, the Bible, Proverbs specifically, is chock full of warnings against taking on debt or paying off debt for somebody else. It, it, it equates it to being uh, as a, like an animal caught in a trap. 
Don't combine accounts. You may think, well, he really loves me, and, and we're going to get married someday. Well, if he likes it, then he would have put a ring on it, okay? And if until he does, then keep the money separate. As soon as he does, you can combine your accounts, but not until then. In any case, married or single, you need to stop digging the hole. You need to stop the bleeding. Financial tips from Proverbs, number two, is this. Have a plan. Have a plan. This sounds really simple. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. You know, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. Have a plan for your money because haste leads to poverty. And, and so much of our money is spent in haste and not in defiance of a plan, but in absence of a plan. You know, write down where you want to spend your money. Write, do this. Write down every dollar you expect to receive over the month and then every dollar you expect to spend, save, or give. I mean, I got to tell you, at the end of the day, that's the only three things you can do with your money. You can give it away, you can spend it, or you can save it. So at the bottom of the paper, the income minus expenses should be exactly zero. Make a plan for every dollar. Now, Jesus said it this way. Luke 14, 28 says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? In other words, you're at a store. You see that thing you've been wanting, you know, that blouse or that iPod or that season six of your TV series on Blu-ray. You know, how, how do you know if you can afford it? How do you know? You have a plan. That's how you know. In our house, we use the envelope system. We allow a certain amount of money for different categories. We have different envelopes that my wife carries around with her because I don't have a place to put them. Uh, and, and we're at the store and we see something we want. We look in that envelope. If there's cash in there, if there's money in there and there's enough to buy it, we can buy it. If there's not, well, we better wait till next month. We probably didn't need it anyway. Making a plan takes some work. And I know some of you are bristling at the thought. Let me tell you why you need a plan. God won't bless a mess. And I'm telling you, I know some of you probably have a sign hanging in your kitchen that says, God bless this mess, but he won't do it. And, and there's time after time in Scripture where we see that God doesn't bless things that are really messy. Think about the story as one example of Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you know that story from the New Testament, there's 5,000 men and their family sitting on the hillside. They've been listening to Jesus preach all day long, uh, coming into the night. The disciples even are getting tired. They're saying, Jesus, we need to end this sermon now. And as their last ditch attempt to end this church service, they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the people are hungry. We've got to send them home. It's not me. It's the people. The people are hungry. We've got to send them home. And, and, and their plan backfires. And Jesus says, well, why don't you feed them? And so they don't know how to feed them. They're just disciples and they don't have any food. And so they go along through the crowd and they find a grand total of, of five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, we've seen Jesus do miracles all throughout the New Testament. We know he can do whatever he wants. But I thought it was interesting that in this particular situation, Jesus doesn't just let the food stay out there and he tries to bless it. He doesn't let it stay scattered. He says, bring the fish and the loaves to me and I will bless them. You know, gather them up. Bring them to me. Let's see what we have here. You know, let's count this thing, okay? Bring them over here. Get them together. See what you've got. And then I will bless it. And watch this. I'm going to do something amazing with it. I'm going to do something miraculous. I'm going to do something you've never seen before. You can't believe that this little amount of food is about to feed a city. But if you bring it to me and let me bless it, if you get it all together and count it and know how much you have and then let me bless it, watch what happens. There's going to be a miracle that happens here. And God won't bless a mess. You need to understand what you have. 
You know, having a plan for your money, see, most people call that a budget. And some of you are excited right now because I just said you have to have a budget and you're like elbowing your spouse over there and your spouse is probably hiding under his jacket uh, because you feel like a budget would confine you, like it would imprison you. But I'm going to tell you just from experience that even though it takes a little work up front, a budget is one of the most liberating things you will ever do with your money. Because here's the thing. You make the budget. You are the boss of it. You get to tell your money where to go. You know, if you don't have a plan, the money kind of goes where it wants to go. But if you write it down first and then agree to stick to that plan, something magical happens. You, you know and understand where your money's going to go. And there's only one thing that's required, though, before you can make a plan, and it's this. You really need to understand what you're spending now. I mean, I know you understand what you spend on your mortgage or your, your rent or, and your car payment and, and things like that, your electric bills. But what you don't always understand is what you spend during the week. And so I want to challenge you this, this week. Go out and buy a little notebook or, or grab a piece of paper and fold it up and put it in your pocket and track every dollar you spend over the next week, every dime you spend. If you go to the ATM and get out $50, don't, don't write down $50 cash. Watch where that money goes. You make a credit card purchase, write it down. You make a debit card purchase, write it down. Uh, I know it sounds silly and like a lot of work to track your 79-cent gas station coffee, but write it down. You'll believe, you won't believe what you spend on some things. I'll just give you an example. Uh, about a year ago, I went to Haiti, and knowing I was going to be gone, I, I decided to give up caffeine. And so I was a big uh, Diet Coke fan. I drank six or seven or maybe more a day. And so when I went to Haiti, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get it, so I, just, I gave up over about a week. I weaned myself off of it. And when I came back, I stayed off caffeine for a long time. And uh, my wife used to buy a case a week at the store, and I knew that was a 6 or 7 or $8 investment. And so I thought, hey, it's good for our grocery budget. It's good for my health. You know, I'm not going to get back on it. Well, the, the allure of the magic caffeine kind of eventually won me back over. And so by last summer, I was back drinking, you know, one or two a day. And, and, but I still didn't have my wife get it at the store because I didn't want to spend that 6 7 $8 a week. And just preparing for this message, I decided I'm just going to count and see what I'm spending now on Diet Coke since we're not buying it from the store. And um, over a couple-day period, I, was, I realized I was spending about $3.50 a day on Diet Coke. So I stopped at the gas station, get one. I got one out of the Coke machine. I get one with my lunch. I get, and realized that if I add it, $3.50 a day is not that much money. But if I take it over an entire year, that's about $1,200 in a year. And if I had just have her get it at the grocery store, um, then it's you know $7 a week or $350 a year instead of $1,200. So just writing down what you have is an amazing tool to help you realize what you're spending on things. And by the way, if you just give it up, you, don't spend, ze- you spend zero on it, so that's a lot better. I'm working on that. And number two is make a plan. Number three is this, save for the future. Save for the future. Proverbs 21.20 says, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. You know, the Bible says the wise don't eat from all they have, and today the wise don't spend all they have. They save some back. You know, Grandma used to call that a rainy day fund. We might call it an emergency fund. Now, savings includes both savings accounts for things you're going to spend soon, like vacations and cars, kids' education, and, and you know the, far, the distant future, things like retirement. Um, you know, and when you put this plan together, don't neglect these expenses. In fact, I would argue that after the tithe, after giving, uh, these are your most expensive categories, our most, most important categories. Because things don't always go as we plan. Something will come up. Something's going to happen. No matter how perfect you think your plan is, something will come along and try to derail it. And having a little money saved up 
helps protect you from those unexpected events. It helps keep you from digging back into those credit cards and going back into debt. Now, now some of you have experienced this already. You know, some of you have felt this. You, you used to be doing really well, but it just took that one event, that one trip to the hospital, that one client, that one layoff, and disaster struck in your finances. You know, I know that some of you can teach this lesson much better than I, I can, but it's going to rain. You know, Grandma called it a rainy day fund. It's going to rain, so be ready. Save for the future. Number four is this. Get out of debt. Get out of debt. Proverbs 22.7 issues a stern warning. It says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. You know, whenever you borrow money from someone, you're becoming their servant. Or as some versions say, your version may say, uh, slave to the lender. You know, you put yourself in a position to be the servant of the bank or the mortgage company or the department store, or whoever you borrow money from. Think of it. Think of this word servant, and you think, well, it's good to be a servant, right? But, but when the Bible uses this word like a slave, think about what it's doing to you. Your master, if you're the slave, your master tells you what job you have to have. It tells you how many hours you have to work. It tells you what you can and can't buy. And if we're in debt, our master, uh, the person we borrow from, tells us the same thing. So who do you want to serve? Who do you want to serve? You want to serve the automakers? Buy a new car and take out a loan. You want to serve Chase Bank? Use one of their credit cards. Want to serve your father-in-law? Probably not, but you know where you can get the money. And here's the other thing. You can't borrow your way out of debt. You know, I heard a commercial on the radio a couple weeks ago that literally said, actually said, you want to be debt-free? Come ask us about our debt consolidation loan to pay off your credit cards. Now, I may not be the sharpest financial mind in the world, but I think if you take out a loan to pay off your debt, you still have debt, okay? I don't think that's true that you can get out of debt uh, by taking out a loan. Romans 13, 8 says this. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone. Great words of advice from the Bible. Now, some of you hear this and you don't agree. You know, some of you own businesses that use debt. And some of you have taken great vacations with your credit card points. You know, some of us uh, get a big tax refund every year because of our mortgage payment. But I'm telling you what the God of the universe says about how to manage your money. You know, he says that it will make you a slave if you go into debt. Is it a sin? No. Uh, nowhere in the Bible have I found where it says that borrowing money is a sin. Is it a bad idea? You bet it is. You're a slave to those you borrow from. And hear me on this. We're not completely debt-free. My wife and I have a mortgage uh, we're, but we're, we're trying desperately to pay that off because we don't want to be a slave to Bank of America anymore. Get out of debt. Number five is this, and this may be the hardest one for some of us. Vow to stay that way. Vow to stay that way. You know, you just have to love the colorful language used in the Bible sometimes, but Proverbs twenty six eleven says this, As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. You know, I can't count the number of people I know who get so far down this road. They're, they're debt-free or they're almost debt-free. You know, they're winning. They're, they're, they're controlling their money. Then the car breaks down. And instead of getting it fixed, they go out and lease a new one. Or, or they have no more payments, but then they see the object of their desire, a new house, a boat, a motorcycle, whatever it is, the pull of something new overwhelms the intensity they once had in controlling their money. And all of a sudden, like a dog returns to its vomit, a fool repeats its fo- his folly. Don't do it. 
When you get there, you've worked so hard to make your life better, and you're going to go backwards? Really? For a new minivan? I mean, come on. Make a promise to yourself that once you're free from slavery, make a promise to yourself and to your family never to go back. Make some joint financial goals instead. Save for the future instead. Give more money instead. Keep control of your money, and you keep control of your life. Well, i got to say, I, I understand. I know that some of this may be a little overwhelming for you. Well, there's one other piece of advice from the book of Proverbs, and this isn't specific just to money, uh, but, but it goes back to Paul's message last week and the challenge that he gave us to make Jesus the Lord of all of our lives. And it comes from Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him or acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. In all your ways, acknowledge him. All your ways. Submit to him. Understand that he is there. Accept that he's in charge. Allow him to rule. You know, there is hope in the Lord. And that's true for you this morning, no matter what your situation is, no matter how well you're doing or how poorly you think you're doing, there is hope in the Lord. And, and, and there's, it's true in the area of your finances and well, as well. And here's the truth for some of you today. You could be really good at controlling your money. You could be out of debt. You could have a big savings account. And you could not at all be honoring God with your finances. And if you get to the end of your life and all you've done is saved a bunch of money and become debt-free and had a good time, have you really made Jesus the Lord of all your life? And see, the irony is this. If you really want to control your money, you need to let it go. You have to realize that it's not your money to begin with. You have to give up control and acknowledge that God is the owner of all. Let him direct your paths, and he will make them straight. You really can't go wrong with this. I have to tell you, no matter the outcome, if you let God speak into your life, if you let his Holy Spirit guide your heart and your finances, if you really trust God with this area of your life, if you really lean into him on this, I believe that at the end of your life, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's just one other thing I want to tell you about, and then we'll close. If you're at a place where you just don't know where to start, you know, maybe you need some more specific guidance uh, or, or help in your finances. Well, Genesis Church is going to be offering Financial Peace University once again on Thursday nights beginning February 9th. And you can sign up today on your connection card. There's a place to sign up for Financial Peace uh, or out at the computer kiosk out here. It's just like one of our connection groups. Uh, the cost is around $100. And, and, but it's an investment that will change your life. It'll change your future. And if you think about it, it could just change the world. Take a look at this.